0: Well, let's dive into our message. So we are this today. We are uh, at the one week point of our intentional 21 day fast right and so it's been neat this week talking different people who are engaging the fast and everyone's doing it in very very different ways which is what we talked about last week right that there is grace in this we simply want you to be obedient to what god's calling you to whether it's a a complete fast this water and juices only or maybe it's a daniel fast like cutting out meat and clean eating with fruits and vegetables or maybe you're doing a partial fast we call intermittent fasting in our world today the idea like you're Maybe not eating from certain periods of time during the day, set up to sundown or whatever it may be for you. Or some sort of social fast. You're taking something in your life like like Netflix or social media and you're cutting that out of out of your life for the twenty-one days for the purpose and of going after Jesus. And we said last week with fasting, it's not primarily about abstaining from something. It's the key. I can abstain from things all day long and not be going after Jesus. That's the primary piece, right? That I'm going after Jesus. I'm, in, I'm in prayer, I'm in the word, I'm in worship, whatever it may be, I'm engaging the disciplines, I'm being really intentional in the using our word intentional in our relationship with Jesus. And that really is the heartbeat behind this 21 day fast is that we are really hungry in our lives to be changed. But we said last week that we want to be changed ourselves So that we can bring about change, right? We're not just fasting for ourselves. We're fasting for Jesus and we're fasting for Jesus for others. And that really is just this heartbeat behind fasting. I encourage you to go listen to the message from last week. It's just practical and talking about fasting in general. And we ended last week talking about how there's a link, there's a link between prayer and fasting, right? Prayer and fasting. We see it multiple times in scripture of our heroes of the faith saying that they were in prayer and fasting about something that was going on in their lives, right? So there's just this piece of, of prayer and fasting this morning. We want to continue to go after this idea of, of marrying prayer and fasting, but I will let you know in advance, this will be a really unique message to how I normally speak and how I go about things. Things, right, just giving you a heads up in advance. Right, so I'm gonna just to help you. I'm gonna kind of share the path with you that we're gonna be on this morning as we get from beginning to end. So the first part is I'm gonna start with a story uh, involving the Bible itself, and our goal in that is to talk about the trustworthiness of Scripture. The idea that what you have in your hand is something valuable, something that you can trust. But we're gonna think and talk about the fact that in the midst of the Bible that you own, that historically in the very very, very ancient manuscripts that there are some discrepancies between specific word choices and even some sentences that are debated by what we call textual critics, which we'll talk about here in a second. And then we're going to look at one of those, just one of those things for the purpose of seeing what does it can, it, can we learn from it, right? What can we learn from it as it relates to the heartbeat of the early church, right? And the area specifically of prayer and fasting and specifically how the marriage of that, it leads to to power in our ministry. And so what I want you to hear me say this morning is that the, the ultimate heartbeat of why we're talking about this is because we believe that in a, in a life of prayer and fasting, that in going after Jesus to be changed, to bring about change, we, we think there is something that happens as followers of Jesus about being empowered that happens in these intentional moments of specifically engaging fasting In prayer. And so I'm just kind of giving you a heads up. This is the direction that we're going. This is what we're doing this morning. By the end, don't worry. It's going to feel very safe for you and very exciting for you, for those of you who are engaging in prayer and fasting. So here's the story this morning. Several years ago on the 4th of July, we were having a like a neighborhood party. It was really common for us. We'd have about 50 to 100 people there, right, from our, like our cul-de-sacs all combined. And kids are running around like we're shooting off fireworks way too close and almost dying, right? Super fun stories and memories. But, but in this, in this moment, we had, there's a day where I was throwing the football around with one of my buddies and I, one of my neighbors. And we're just talking life, talking things. He knows I'm a pastor. And kind of out of the blue, he makes a pastor. He goes, you know what, man, about Christianity, it's like I could never be a Christian because I just don't really trust the Bible, which is really the foundation of Christianity, and I said, really, that's super interesting, man. I'd love to know more. Like, what what caused you have to trust the Bible? He goes, well, you know, man. I mean, you know. I'm like, what do I know? He's like, well, you know, it's been translated so many times. How can we even be sure that what the, me- the, the message of the Bible is is actually the Bible that we're holding today? And if that's the case, then, like, I can't even trust Christianity as a whole. I can't even trust the book that it's birthed off of. And I went, bro, that is so fascinating that you believe that. Right? I just want you to know in advance, I'm kind of giving you a little bit of like, how do I talk to someone around an evangelist sharing the gospel, right? Who is saying completely something absolutely wrong, right? And so I'm like, that's super interesting. I'd love to know how you got to that place from your study. Because I will say one of the things that I found in study, and I began to unpack, which i unpacked for you. And what I began to find, learn in study is the Bible's actually only been translated one time. It's been translated from Greek into every other language, and for us, into English. So it's actually only been translated one time, and as it relates to the history of the Bible, it's actually really fascinating, but I don't know if you know this or not. This is what I learned, at least. It's like in the reality of our manuscripts, we actually have over 5,500 manuscripts that were written in the Greek that we actually have possession of today, and up to 7,500 when you take the different pieces, pieces, like fragments of the Bible, right, that people found different places, and when you put them all together being written from 125 A.D. just after the death of Paul, right, all the way up to 400 A.D. in the early church, that all of these manuscripts basically all say the exact same thing and there actually is no conflict with them at all. And then they put them all together because they actually shared the exact message that the authors intended. They have the exact same stories that the authors wrote. And what we have today actually in the Bible that we hold is actually the most trustworthy and reliable book from history. Bro, just a comparison. I threw the football really far because I a great arm, right? I said, so with that, man, it's like compared to the other most historically accurate book, the Iliad, which we read all the time in school, which only has 650 sources and manuscripts. So from everything that I've learned from just a small study is that actually the Bible is 100 percent trustworthy. But again, that's just my opinion. And he kind of looked at me and holding the ball, he goes, well, there's lots of other things I don't like about Christianity, right? He goes down his list, right? Super, super funny. So I think in this, what I want you to recognize is that all the, we always put them in quotes, air quotes, theologians, like all the people who spend all of their time, whether they are progressive, whether they are conservative, doesn't really matter. All of them would, would say in some form or fashion that what we have in our Bible today, right, is trustworthy, that it is accurate, that the message of every single writer that was intended, like that every in intention, Tension and every message they were trying to get across is with the Bible that you hold today. And so when we talk about it, we can come with great trust and confidence that the Bible is what the intended authors meant it to be. And we thank God for that, right? It's beautiful. Now, in that, it is super interesting to note, though, that in these ancient manuscripts, again, 5,500 to 7,500 manuscripts, that there are moments where there are different word choices or additions to some manuscripts from the previous manuscript, or even like added sentences. Now, every theologian will tell you 100% of it doesn't impact the message, doesn't impact the intent of the author, but it's just certain words. And the part of that being, you had scribes back in the day who literally without a printing press, we're taking the entire let's just say New Testament this morning and sitting down, and then they were just copying everything, right? Every single thing, and and it's beautiful that they're so accurate and so equal to one another. But in these moments, first we have reality of Greek words that don't have a real clear meaning, right? We can't quite, with clarity, know exactly. There's no perfect translation into English, so we have to do our best job, and scribes do their best job to kind of figure out what that word choice is. But also along the way, sometimes there would be there would be like a clarification. So a we'll scribe writing writing and go, "Oh, our church the, the church has fully embraced this idea," or or actually this is the language that we use in our part of the world, in our part of the church. So, for example, a phrase that that textual critics, textual critics are basically those in theological world, like who like to take these specific terms, you recognize, them yeah, the message is true, but let's just have fun debating over here, right? And one of those phrases they debate is kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of God, right? In kingdom of heaven, that would be certain language in a certain region. certain region over here would use kingdom of God. doesn't really matter. They mean the exact same thing. So they'll sit there and, like, go back and forth with it. But at the end of the day, we do have these types of words or these types of phrases. So if you have a Bible that has footnotes, that's why when you're reading through, all of a sudden there'll be a little footnote. It'll say, A, right here. And it'll say, underneath, in th- this sentence, or this word was not present in the earliest manuscripts, right? But they added because, in going back and forth, they said, we think this is important. We think this was the intended message from the beginning. Here's something else about manuscripts. It's important to note they're not all equal. So we have 5,500, but some of these manuscripts are valued more. Why? Because they're older, They're closer to when they were written so we will give them greater greater weight and greater validity to it, right? So they come back and say, well, we recognize from the earliest it says this, the latest say this, this is probably an addition, so we'll just use what's written here, and then we're going to footnote here because recognizing the early church really did embrace this idea. So if you read to the King James Version, for chance, it's going to be really different than the NIV or the ESV or the NASB, the versions we primarily use today. Why is this important? Because one of the things that I want to talk about this morning will be one of those footnotes in your Bible. One of those footnotes in your Bible. One of these, kind of, these, verse, one of these words and verses that was talked about. So with that, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, because you have a phone, you have one. Please pull it out for me real quick while I get a drink of water. I want you to start making your way over to Matthew. I want you to go to chapter 17. Of Matthew. I will say, as a pastor, there's no better sound than like pages rustling. I, I actually miss, man, I hate that we have the Bible app because it's so great. To, it's such a great noise, right? All right, now scan down to verse 21. And show of hands, real quick, how many of you have a verse 21 in your Bible? Very few of you. So the reality is in most of our versions, right, our newer versions, the one that I just named the NIV, in this one, it, it literally has a footnote in verse 21, the ESV, that says some manuscripts insert here, verse 21, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. All right? But we grew up, KJV right here, man, 50 and over. Man, I grew up in the, man, it was definitely that right there, baby, you know. The NIV says it this way. Some manuscripts, some manuscripts include here words similar to Mark 29. So the idea, then let's slip over to Mark 9, 29. And in most modern versions of the Bible, Mark 29, 9, 29 says something like this. And it's on the screen for you. And Jesus said to them, screen for you, Says Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And then we see right here in our in the book that it has a footnote. In mine, it says E with a visible footnote that says some manuscripts add and fasting, and fasting. Super interesting, getting back to this point, right? So again, nothing to be worried about here. The message and the intent of the authors is clear. This is not ultimately impacting anything, right? Somewhere along the way, someone that ascribed in the early church put down and fasting. So this morning, we want to talk about this. Again, not to to base all of our theology around it, but to simply ask the question, what was going on in the hearts of the early church that they felt super comfortable and confident with adding prayer and fasting into Mark? 9:29. And why did Matthew, like, what is somewhere along the way they add this verse, verse 21, into a later manuscript very, very, very early in the church? And I just wonder this morning... If there's something for us to grab hold of with it. And obviously I think that there is because we're talking about it, right? So let's just dive in this morning. So let's go back to Matthew 17. We're going to read our way through it. Verses 14 through 21. Probably a familiar story. It says this, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples. They could not heal him. And Jesus answered. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. It's okay to feel a little frustration, a little tension, a little brokenness there in the voice of Jesus. And Jesus, in that moment, rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith, some verses say lack of faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And then adding our footnote, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So as we dive into, into this story, let's break it down this morning. The first thing we notice is the disciples cannot do something that has been very natural to them since Luke 9-1. I don't know how much time has passed from when they're going to be sent out two by two, and, and, right, I don't, and to this point here. But Luke 9-1 is really important, right, because Luke 9-1 is they're able to cast out demons, and here they're not able to cast out demons or an evil spirit. Luke 9, 1, very important. It says this, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And we know they were affected because the other verse here, Luke 10, verse 17, when they came back from ministry, came back from praying, said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Press pause. When you start talking about demonic possession and deliverance ministry, I'm asking that you would take out all of the movies that you've ever seen and put them over here and move them out of your mind. Like, if you want to sit down sometime with me and just hear some stories of working and dealing and, and ministering to people who've been spiritually oppressed, I have a long, it'd be, it'd be a long, long lunch of just walking you through, being able to be used by God to set people free, right? It's really, really fun to watch people go from oppression to freedom. Someone say amen, right? And so I don't want you to discount this as something from the past. We talk about deliverance, talk about demonic oppression. I want you to know that we are a church, I'm a pastor, who believes that this is still current today in the world in which we live, right? So much to learn about it, so many things that you need to engage and get wise in, but today's going to be a level of foundation because you are a people who've been empowered Powered by God's spirit to do the things that Jesus did and to do even greater things that he did. Why? Because you have your spirit and now there's not just 13. There are millions of us, right? So more and more is able to happen, okay? So let's just start right there. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's not something just far off. That's something current. Therefore, for them, the reason for their lack of success in casting out this demon has nothing to do about the power of the evil spirit. How do we know this? Because nothing is more powerful than the authority of Jesus. They have power, right? They have power. They possess it. It was given to them. It belongs to them. They have the authority of Jesus. And it wasn't about then the power of Jesus not being strong enough, because what does he do? He just walks there and goes, yo, And he's gone, right? It's like it's how it happens, right? It's like it's gone. He has immediate power and authority in this one to set the boy free. It didn't have anything to do with Jesus or the Spirit. Therefore, it must have been something about the disciples. And that's what we read here, right? Look at the interaction between the disciples and Jesus in verse 19 through 21. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Okay, help us out. Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith or your lack of faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and move and nothing will be impossible for you. And then the added footnote that this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. Again, going back then to Mark 9 it says this kind does not come out by prayer. Recognizing Mark was written before Matthew, right? Mark was written before Matthew, and so there's this credibility here in this verse here, because this doesn't come out to by prayer and possibly fasting as a footnote here, right? And so in this, they aren't successful. He says, "You're not successful in this moment because of your lack of faith, your little faith." Listen, Jesus had an expectation of his disciples, of his disciples being able to cast out every demon. He gave them authority. When they couldn't do it here, we saw in verse 17, it's the level of like tension and frustration directed at the disciples from Jesus. And when they asked why weren't we successful, he says, because of your little faith. Little faith really is the key this this morning, right? Little faith. Like little faith here literally means, this is important, it's not on the screen, but you can write it down. Little faith or lack of faith here literally means interpreting it from the Greek, lacking confidence or trusting too little. Trusting too little. I love that phrase, right? Trusting too little, right? An idea here could be of misplaced trust. Because we're always trusting some something. Whether I'm trusting myself, someone else, or Jesus, right? So you could say it's too little faith. Or you could say it's misplaced trust. So the disciples possessed faith. That's super important, Okay. So over here, there's a lack of faith, a little faith, not putting their faith in the right place, right? They're ineffective in this because of it. But they possess faith. How do we know this? Well, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. It's on the screen. It says this. I say to everyone. this This is Paul writing. This is to every Christian, every believer. I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of him or herself than he ought to think, But to think, so as to have sound judgment, to be wise, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's really important, okay? God has allotted a measure of faith. Remember, it's by grace, through faith, that a person is saved, right? So salvation for them began with the possession of faith. Faith that God allotted to them to receive Christ, right, surrender to him and give their life to him. So they possessed faith for salvation. It saved them. It was their faith that empowered them to pray for the sick and cast out demons in Mark 6, in Luke 9, right? The same, same story, just different, different, different places in Scripture, it, in the Gospels. They possessed faith. God gave them a measure of it. And faith, as small as the mustard seed, has the power to move mountains. And so we begin to think of the theology of faith, Then we've got to recognize if a measure of faith has been allotted to everyone, and that measure of faith has the power to at least lead someone to salvation, then it at least has to be the size of a mustard seed, right? So what we possess is at least the size of a mustard seed they possessed faith. Every believer has had faith allotted to them, right? Allotted to them. And the same is the case here. So with this, what is what's the issue? What's the issue? What is Jesus saying here? First, what I want you to recognize this in the Romans 12. Faith is the opposite of pride. This is really important. Faith in your life is the opposite of pride. Faith, you all know this is leaning into, trusting in and relying on Jesus, right Faith, leaning into, trusting in and relying on Jesus. The alternative then for pride is at its core is about leaning into, trusting in and relying on self. That 's the nature of pride. I can do it. I can make it happen. I have the ability. I am the center point of my own life. Pride. I can do it. That's the story of Genesis. Human beings, Adam and Eve, first man and woman, believe that they could literally eat of this fruit and take care of themselves. We didn't want to obey God. The level of pride, I can do this myself. And so faith is the opposite of Pride. Pride at its core is trusting self. And the key here is this. Pride always gets in the way of faith. Pride, trusting self, always gets in the way of faith, trusting and relying on and leaning into Jesus. And that's what's required in mountain-moving moments, like setting a person free spiritually. I can't do it by trusting and leaning into self. I have to trust in and lean into Jesus to see the power of God expressed. Pride, pride always gets in the way of faith. Paul says here in Romans 12, that verse, says, don't think too highly of yourself, remember? like that's the, that's, the, that's the beginning point for him talking about having faith measured as a gift. He said, listen, you're pro- I am super concerned about the Romans. I'm super concerned about the Christians in Rome, both the Gentile and the Jewish Christians. You both think that you're so right, and you can't even have a spirit of unity defining you, is the whole point behind Romans. You're coming because to- you're trusting yourself. You're believing in yourself. I- I'm just really concerned that you're thinking too highly of yourself. Please have sound judgment. Please be wise. Faith, Faith is something that is only found as you lean into God. It's been allotted to you. It's a gift to you. You have to practice it. It can't be about leaning into self. It has about leaning into relying on and trusting Jesus. Pride is common among every human being. I don't know about you, but I am prone to it. And a hint, hint, hint. So are you. (laughs) I know that because you're human, right? We by nature always think that we're right. Ask your spouse, do you, think, do you think I always think I'm right? Yes, right? And so, in this, pride has come to every human being in our own strength. Listen, it's good to be honest and say, in our own strength, we can make a lot of things happen, right? We can be actually effective in a lot of things on earth. There are people today who are the antithesis of following Christ who are making a difference and being very effective, even in positive things in our world, right? There are a lot of things you can do and be effective in in our life, honestly, without knowing Jesus. But I will say, and I think you would all agree, there comes a moment in every person's life where they're like, oh, no. Right? Oh, no. Lots of other adjectives they would probably use other than that, right? Oh no, right? These moments when they can't control something, they can't make things happen in their own strength. These moments that we know require faith in Jesus because there are mountains that need to be moved in their life. And pride, focus has been their primary lifestyle, and they have no idea what to do. But it's really funny because in those moments. What do almost all of them do at some point in their life? Cry out to a God they don't even believe in. God allows every single person to get to mountain moving moments where we can't do something in our own strength, whether we are a believer or unbeliever. Right? He allows us to always get to that place to remind every human being, you cannot do it in your own strength. You can't do it by relying on you. You can't just trust your own abilities in your own self. He gets every single person to that moment for the purpose of awakening them to the need for God, right? And their faith in him. I'll never forget. I was on the golf course one day talking to a buddy, right? And we were talking about life and talking about Christianity and I just asked the question again. It's a great question to ask. He said something. He said, well, do you, I said, I have a question for you. He said, do you, do you ever just think about God? Like, I just wonder, man, like where you were. Like, I think about God all the time. But I just like, what do you do? Like, I don't know, man. I'm just, I just haven't I've never been in a person's mind like you in a really, really long time since I was like six. So just help me understand, like, what happens for you? Like, not being a, not being a quote-unquote Christian, right? Like, what do you, like, what, does God ever cross your mind? And he's like, yeah, man. I'm like, when? He goes, Oh, you know, when things get really bad. And I'm like, when things get really bad, when things get really out of control, he starts telling me stories. Yeah, this happened in my life. It was a really like a mountain-moving moment in his life. And he goes, yeah, man, it's like... Ooh, I cried out to God, I said, God, if you're there, I would love some help, man. Let's help a brother out, man, da, da 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 right? And he's like, he said, and I said, oh, that's great. I love that you did that, man. That's super, super cool, man. What happened? Oh, well, yeah, everything got better. Everything got better, man. I mean, you know, you know this life just happened. Like something shifted, you know, so yeah, something shifted. I'm like, do you think it was God? I'm like, ah, I don't know, you know, big everything got better. Said, and then what would you do with God? He said, well, stop thinking about him. I was like, why? Because I didn't need him anymore. I was like, man, that's, I was like, and again, wow, that's super interesting. (laughs) That guy, three months later, came to Christ. Super fun, man. Super fun. Basically, the moral of the story is always go to the golf course with unbelieving friends. There you go, guys. My gift to you, okay? (laughs) All right. Um, Let me catch myself up. Here we go. Um, Yeah. So mountains, mountains, according to Jesus, are only moved as human beings exercise faith in God. That's the point. It's always the point towards him leaning into, trusting in, and relying on Jesus. And so I have to assume then, when reading Matthew 17 in the story, that Jesus is then not challenging their possession of faith. He's already allotted it to them, but instead he must be challenging the lack of exercising faith, or exercising faith and trust and leaning into and relying on Jesus, because they must have been trusting in, relying on, and leaning into self. Or just not being aware of Jesus in the moment, right? I wonder if they've grown so accustomed to quote unquote success at this point that they stopped focusing on Jesus. As their source of power and just started trusting their own experience and trusting self. Whatever it is, we can be confident from Jesus' word that in this moment of casting out an evil spirit, a moment that felt like a mountain needing to be moved moment by, by the, by the dad and the boy for sure, the disciples who, the disciples who possessed faith were not exercising faith. That's really the heartbeat behind it. They possessed something that they weren't exercising. By nature we do that all the time, never forget growing up, man. It's like when I would, listen, I would sit down with a new math problem in third grade with my mom. And I'm thinking to myself, I need you over my shoulder the entire time to watch what I'm doing because I'm so nervous I'm going to get it wrong, right? And so I'm like leaning, like doing this whole like, I'm like doing this kind of like to see what scene, teaching she's, she's me, with like a facial expression, like, Mm-mm, right? Like, okay, whatever it is, right? Like I want to, I want to get it right. So I'm just looking at her and focusing. She's like, okay, yeah, okay. I'm like, okay, right. And so I began to do it again and again. And each time I look away less and each time I look away less until all of a sudden I'm like, I've got it mom and she go back and sit down that's great to do with math problems but you can't do with mountain moving moments and i'll just be honest it's not on my notes y'all but the world needs a bunch more christians who move mountains under the power of god's spirit who believe for it, who go after it, who expect it every single day of their lives, right? I would love to sit down with my football throwing friend and have him ask me a little bit, but the miracles, you ever experienced those? Yeah bro, let's sit down, we can't throw football doing that because it's gonna to take too long. We want to have the stories of God's movement, the story of God's power expressed through us, not because of us, but because we got out of the way and leaned into, trusted, and relied on God and had faith in him. So, Steve, what does this have to do about textual criticism? Why are we talking about the very beginning and been way too long talking about it? After challenging their lack of exercising faith, Jesus then says, possibly in footnote verse, but this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting." We know Mark, we know Jesus said that in Mark, right? I was confident, like Mark put it in, this one comes out by prayer. And let me just say as we dive into this, I'm not going to unpack this too much, but, but biblically speaking, it's not fasting that empowers us to cast out a demon. That's not necessary, but a life of prayer and relationship is. And so what I would say is it relates to what's mandatory to express a life of faith, of exercising faith, of experiencing the power of God. The necessity is a life of prayer according to Mark chapter 9. But what I'm going to be saying is my argument is fasting absolutely helps. That's what we're going to look at. Okay. So prayer. Prayer this morning. Start with prayer. Obviously, Jesus here and saying this comes out by prayer is not talking about their length of prayer here because Jesus came over and he snapped his fingers and the demon was gone. Right now, we recognize we recognize Jesus is different than his disciples, obviously, but his expression, how he's doing ministry, is not what he modeled. Is what is modeled. So that's what we do. Right. And so it's not the length of prayer and it's not specifically talking about a specific type of prayer that Jesus prayed, as in there's right words and wrong words for prayer. I'll tell you, I probably in my life literally realistically read about seven books from college up until recently of, of, of men and women who were used by God in in. Bringing about freedom from spiritual oppression. The first book I ever read, probably the foundation, is called Pigs in the Parlor, right? If you want to read a fun book, go read that book, right? Pigs in the Parlor. Yes, it's great. Great name, draws you in, right? Super profound, super foundational. Encourage all of you to read it, right? So I've read all sorts of books, and the one, one of the primary things I walk away with in all these books is this. Everybody does it differently. Literally, that's what I realized. Everyone does it differently. The one thing they have, the two things that they primarily have in common is they rely on the power of Jesus and they tell people to leave their sin. Right. That's really it. Tell people to leave something, forego something, let go of something. Right. A repentance, turning away from something. But in this, there's this beautiful place where he modeled. right, is this prayer. So instead of Jesus, instead of Jesus, he's talking about here rather than like a specific type of prayer here talking about the life of prayer. That then leads into these moments. That's what he's ultimately getting at. Every theologian I read, everything that I talked about was talking about this idea. It has to then mean a lifestyle of prayer that defines their life leading up to this moment that would be similar to Jesus's. That they were living in relationship with Jesus. They were living in conversation. They didn't have a friendship with Jesus from a distance. They were relating to Jesus and the Father every day intimately, right? We shoot our arrow, the discipline of prayer. We put it, put ourselves into the presence of Jesus. Jesus, and it changes us. And usually changing is about dying to sell so that we decrease and Jesus increases. You could say the life of prayer keeps Jesus increasing in your life every day. A life of prayer makes you aware every day of your need for him. It's literally laying down saying Jesus is all about you. So life of prayer leading into this moment. This would mean a continual life of prayer where Jesus says, abide in me, right? So it could be an abiding in God that re- results in a, in a spiritual preparedness. It results in a possessing of spiritual power through the anointing of the Holy Spirit that will be then effective in every conflict, even over severe demonic attack or influence. A life of prayer, a preparation of my heart, always tender before him. Oswald Chamber says it this way beyond the screen. We can ever remain powerless, as were the disciples in this moment. Read that again. We can never remain powerless, as were the disciples, by trying to do God's work, not in concentration on his power, but by ideas drawn from our own mind. We slander God by our very eagerness to work for him without knowing him. Discover that yourself. Let the word sink in. We slander God by our very eagerness to work for Him without knowing Him. Remember that weird story the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached? And the demon said, Jesus we know and Paul we've heard of. Who the heck are you? And then beat the snot out of him. I'll just say, A.K.A., it's important to know Jesus, right? It's important to know Jesus. Faith is awakened. Faith is awakened as we engage a life of prayer. Now, fasting, what does this come in, Steve? Help me walk through this. What does fasting have to do with all this? Why does so many? Like, it's important to know the 5,500 early manuscripts, more than half of the early manuscripts add verse 21, and they add in fasting to verse 29, So it may not have been the original, written in 125, which is the most historical, the most accurate, right? It's what we build our Bible off of, primarily, right? But somewhere between 125 and 400, it was so accepted to put this in that no one even questioned to the point in the KJV that all of us read who were old, basically, 50, 50 and over, right? We read it because we grew up with. So why was it so accepted? It was not mandatory and necessary Is it at least important? And I would make the argument, I think think it's super interesting to recognize what fasting does and what it does It's why it's so important. So what did we talk about last week? We simply said fasting, we said last week fasting increases our sense of humility and dependence on God. That's like a byproduct of what fasting does. It's to help awaken humility and a dependence on him. When we say humility does, it kills pride and it causes faith. Humility causes faith to be awakened. I can't. Oh, it awakens me to the fact that only Jesus can. So we talked about last week with fasting. We said our hunger, right, our hunger when we physically fast food right our hunger and physical weakness and fasting continually remind us how we are really not strong enough in ourselves because we need jesus's strength that's the heartbeat of fasting say god i can't sustain for myself i need you to sustain i can't do to my own strength jesus i recognize in fasting i am so weak i need your strength the heartbeat behind fasting is humility we can't sustain our own lives and our own strength. We need God. Therefore, we hunger for his presence and movement in our lives. It's a product, to a product of fasting. So we hunger for his presence. We hunger for his movement in our lives. That's the heartbeat behind fasting. It awakens us in humility to our need for him. Fasting at its core then is this. Practice that awakens a recognition of our need for God to sustain and empower us. AKA humility. So the disciples, they possessed faith. They had like done like this with Jesus, right? Even the demons were so surprised, and then all of a sudden along the way, somewhere in the possession of faith, they stopped exercising faith. They had stopped this engagement in their life of leaning into and trusting, probably pulling back from a life of of their prayer time with God because things were just going so well because we naturally do that in our success. And then a moment came, by the grace of God, a mountain-moving moment that required an exercise of the faith that they already possessed, that they weren't exercising because maybe pride had crept in, right? There was this thing, I can make this happen and do to my own strength. Their success was actually their greatest danger. Everybody like that, their success is the greatest danger for falling in their life, right? And in their success, they kind of pulled back, and this moment came, and they were even completely unaware that they were probably leaning into pride. And Jesus says, guys, this kind only comes out by prayer. This relationship ongoing that you have with me that awakens a reliance and a trust and a belief in me. And somewhere along the way in the early church, this is my guess, and so you can go study it for yourself, my guess is, they began to actually value then this value of fasting because they recognize this is a discipline that God's given us that awakens humility that can then empower my prayer life. We see it again and again and again, the Old Testament, New Testament, and they probably began to accept it because it probably just became an everyday practice or at least a a regular practice, excuse me, a regular practice for them of having seasons and moments of fasting that they recognized was the purpose of awakening humility so that in their prayer life, then pride would die, they would be effective in ministry and the power of God could be released. Is fasting necessary? No, but prayer is. And I think all that we find just by its inclusion in the early manuscripts is that it is not Bible truth, but it is historical evidence that the church loved it and embraced it, and it had value. And that's all I want to say about it that I believe it is of utmost value to us as a discipline. It's not necessary if we have this life-giving faith and we're believing and trusting God. But in moments of your life or moments of my life, I begin to find myself kind of pulling away and I open up my eyes and recognize that fasting is a quick arrow that I can shoot, puts me into the presence of God and humbles me so that faith can arise. That's what we're getting at. So today, and this is on the screen as we marry prayer and fasting, here are some of the things I believe happen. As we marry prayer and fasting, a continual abiding in God will occur. As we pray and as we fast, right? As we pray and fast, an ongoing awareness of hunger and need for him will be awakened. As we pray and fast, pride is killed. We pray and fast. Faith is awakened as we pray and fast and mountains are moved through you. And as you are on the golf course with your friend or throwing the football at a neighborhood party, you're able to look at someone with confidence because you can tell the stories of what Jesus has done by faith in power, by grace through faith in power in your life. And the prayer I want to leave you with is this in the one that we already read from Matthew 17 with the father, with this oppressed son. where He looks at Jesus and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Or another way of saying it, I have faith. I possess it, but help my lack of exercising faith. And so today as we have ministry, that can be a starting place for you to bring the lights down. I just invite you in this moment just Begin to recognize faith and pride. Recognize what God's putting his finger on. Recognize the nature of humility in your life. Recognize the expression of power or the hunger for God's power to be released. You possess faith if you are a Christ follower today. Just thank God for that possession of faith that you have. But to say, God, I do lift my head up. I probably, listen, when we're not living in faith, The supernatural of God seems like too much, so we stop going after it. But when we lift our eyes to see the power of Jesus by faith, then all things become possible. We can know how well we're doing in humility. We can know how well we're doing in faith. When we are living our lives anticipating an expectation of God's Spirit moving in power and bringing breakthrough and moving mountains. If we're not living in that, then there's maybe a place where we have grabbed hold of something else other than biblical faith, and this can be a season of beautiful awakening, as the Holy Spirit invites you to awakening. So just invite Him to awaken you today. Father, we recognize this morning the power of Jesus. Father, we recognize the beauty of Jesus. Father, recognize the grace of Jesus available to us Way you pour yourself out on our lives, Lord. God, we're aware, God, of the possession we have of your Holy Spirit who has empowered us to do the things that Jesus did. And I confess, Lord, I'm, I want to be a person, Lord, who has stories to tell of yesterday in anticipation of stories tomorrow, not just telling stories from the Bible or from 20 years ago. Lord, would you begin in our lives to awaken faith, to exercise faith, to see the Spirit of God move in power through us. God, help us to surrender and be honest to you today in that. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen.